Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. 1,000 years ago, an Italian monk named Anselm of Canterbury sat down to write what has become one of the most important Christian books ever written. The title of that book asks its main question. It was in Latin, as things were back then. Cur Deus Homo, meaning, why did God become a man? You understand that for God to become a man, that's not a small thing. We take it for granted because we're accustomed to that by now. But here is God who has existed for all time as God. And then the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ our Lord, takes on, he doesn't lose anything, but he takes on our humanity. A humanity that he himself created. But he takes it on in a permanent marriage, a permanent alliance of God and man that will go on forever. Jesus never stops being us. So back to Anselm's question, why such a drastic step? There are a number of reasons, but Anselm gave what is the heart of the answer. We know that because the answer he gave is the same answer you're going to see in our text in 1 John today. Among other things, the primary reason that God was willing to become a man was to take away your sins. It was to give you an example as well. It was to reveal something of God to you as well, but the central thing that God was doing in becoming a man was going to the cross to die so that the sins that are on your record that separate you forever from God, that those sins can be taken away. First, the guilt of them, and then even those sins themselves. Anselm said it was to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against your sin. That's why God became a man, primarily. Now, that is a true answer, the truest of all answers. And yet, sadly, there's something about that answer that's been misunderstood over the last several decades in America where we find ourselves. And that is, as probably many of you know, that over the last really century, through the work of many faithful evangelists, we have had the gospel that Jesus, as God, came to earth as a man, died to take away your sins. We've had that gospel brought from coast to coast of our country, proclaimed in large gatherings and small gatherings and one-on-one, so that today in our country, who doesn't know that Jesus died for sins? There are maybe a few people, but not many. So everyone has a sense that Jesus died to take away sins, but unfortunately in presenting that gospel message, there's been a very serious misunderstanding, and it is that Jesus died to take away only the guilt of your sin, that his intention in dying on the cross goes no further than that. 
Jesus died so that you don't have to go to hell because he takes away your sin. He forgives you. God forgives you because that's God's job is to forgive you. And therefore, if you pray to God and ask him to forgive you for your sins, he simply forgives them and you can go on living your life however you want, however you were, however you wish. You're still forgiven because that's the gospel. That's why God came to the earth. I hope you can see how that gets so close to being completely true, but it's actually half of the truth. It's essential, but it's half of the truth. God became a man to take away the guilt of our sins. This is absolutely true, but also to take away the power of our sins. And that is just as true as the other. We've only been giving half of the message to everyone, and it's led to a lot of confusion. Here's the confusion I'm talking about. You have many people who are today relying upon an experience they had, usually at some kind of an altar call or at some moment when they prayed a prayer at the encouragement maybe of a preacher or when they were at a camp and they prayed or they went forward or they did some action or they prayed certain words and their reliance now is completely upon the experience that they had, that they are completely forgiven, that the gospel is for them, that Jesus' death has removed all of their guilt. But they come home from the camp or they return from the revival meeting and they realize their life's not changed at all. They continue living in the same sin that they lived in before. Their life continues to be primarily about them Nothing has changed except the experience they had. And this sense, based on the confident assertions of whoever was teaching or saying this, that my sins are forgiven. So if you approach someone who is living in clear sin and you say, perhaps you need to reconsider if Christ has really caused you to be born again, they will say, well, no, no, no. The guilt is cleared away because I prayed. Because I trusted then, at that time, in Jesus, it's over. If you really trust in Jesus, the guilt of your sin is gone. That is the gospel. But it doesn't stop right there. <laughs> we stop it right there, but the gospel doesn't stop right there. The fact is that Jesus' blood, it's not too weak to cleanse away all of the sins that you commit, but it's too strong to cleanse away your sins and not to change you. If you trust in Jesus and have the guilt of your sin removed, you will also begin to have the power of sin in your life removed. In other words, there will be a definite, not a complete, but there will be a definite change that takes place. We say that Jesus died to take away your sins. That's what John will tell us today. Yes, you see, to take away your sins. So have your sins been taken away from you? There is a double sense here. Yes, the guilt, but also to some degree the power, even the presence of sin in your life. The church fathers like to say it like this, although there's been some confusion on this saying, that God became a man. Why? So that we, who are men and women, might become like God. But like God in this sense, holy, righteous, separated from sin. Paul says, by sending his own son... In the likeness of sinful flesh. There's God. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
And in that case, he is talking about how you actually live. You are not saved by living a good life. You are not saved by putting off sin. But if you're saved, these will be the consequences more and more, or no change has happened. John has been telling us this over and over, that Christ came to remove the guilt of your sin, and he does. And if he does, he also removes the power of your sin, and over time, the very presence of sin in your life. So that you know I'm not telling you something foreign or unusual, let's just turn our attention to the text we find ourselves at. This is precisely what John is saying. We are in 1 John chapter 3, and you, of course, know, even in the first chapter, he had already been saying that God is light, so if you claim to know him, you will walk in the light. We're returning to that same question of how you, if you know God, it will change your life. And we're going to see it here. We're going to really find the answer to Anselm's question, why did God become a man? Here is John's answer. In 1 John 3, let me begin in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. We stop the reading there, although this passage continues all the way down to verse 10, but we'll pick up and talk about the last half of the passage next week. Really, those go together and... I think the controlling verse in our passage, the one from which everything else grows, is verse 5, where he says, you know that he, referring to Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And all of the verses around verse 5, pressing upon you the fact that if your sins are taken away, you will not keep on sinning. They're all growing out of God's intention in sending His Son in verse 5. Why did He come? Why did God become a man? Why did Jesus appear? And the summary answer is to take away sins. But to John, it's not an easy American gospel. Pray the prayer and the guilt of your sins are gone. The end for John, it's a complete package. You see that in the text? That if he takes away your sins, the guilt of them, then you will see that it is impossible for you to live a complete lifestyle of sin like you did before you knew Jesus. That's all he's saying in this passage. So we're going to consider under these two headings then. Because you really have in verse 5, his focus on when he says, he came to take away sins. The focus is on the guilt of your sin. So don't misunderstand me. That is the essence of what the gospel says. So we'll begin there and consider what it means that Jesus takes away the guilt of your sin. It's the gospel. It's wonderful. 
But then we'll move on to the rest of the verses where John concludes that if Jesus takes away the guilt of your sin, he also takes away the power of the sin in your life so that you can, over time, overcome it. So let's look first at how he takes away the guilt of your sin, and secondly, how Jesus takes away the power of your sin. So let's begin here with Jesus taking away the guilt of your sins in verse 5. Let me read that again. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. What I'm about to tell you all, you already know. <laughs> Notice that he says, you know. Okay, why tell us? You already know it. And what I'm about to tell you in this part of the message is not going to be new, probably, as I look out, maybe a few of you I've not met if you're visiting or new, but I know you and I know that you know what I'm about to tell you. So you might think that this will be a little bit redundant. Do you not know that Jesus died for your sins? Do you not know that Jesus died to take away the guilt of sin? You know that already. So why say this to you? Well, the very first reason is because when you look at this passage, it's exactly what John is doing. He starts by saying, listen, you know this. <laughs> that actually increases the effectiveness of what he's about to say. He says, this isn't something new I'm bringing to you. You don't have to think, is this true? He says, you already know that this is true. So why write it, John? Simply for the sake of reminder. John has already said this in chapter 2. He said, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. But if you know it, then why write to you? I think Peter actually gives us the answer, John's good friend and fellow disciple and apostle. In the first chapter of 2 Peter, he says, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, <clears throat> to stir you up by way of reminder. You know then, that Jesus died to take away the guilt of your sins? You know that? <clears throat> I am here to stir you up by way of reminder. Because although you know that, did you remember that this week? <laughs> when you were at work with that unpleasant coworker and that was driving you crazy yet again, did you remember that the guilt of all your sins have been removed and that that's the most important fact in all of life? When you were looking at your financials and were fairly concerned with inflation rising and so forth, and you started to feel a real anxiety this week, did you remember, but you know what? My sins are forgiven. I don't have to give an account for my sins. I don't have to pay a payment I never could. My sins, they're completely cleared away. I'm in the green when it comes to my sins. Did you remember that? <laughs> Speaking to me too, probably not. So here we are to stir ourselves up by way of reminder. You already know that Jesus died to take away your sins as to their guilt. But we forget it every week, every day. If you've seen Justin's class, Gospel Treason. We forget these things every day. Therefore, let's be stirred up. 
If the embers are low in your heart, which happens, you go through seasons as a Christian, and sometimes the embers of the gospel are growing low, and you feel discouraged and secularly minded, and maybe you don't think of Jesus that much. It's a hard season. Some people call it a funk that you get into. Well, then we stir up the embers. We take our stick by the campfire, and we stir it up till the fire ignites again. So, that's what we're doing right now. You know already. And what is it that you know? He tells us. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. We are going to get to how that pertains to taking away the actual sins you commit during the week. But we're not going to go there right away because the gospel doesn't start there, neither do we. We are beginning with the fact that Jesus came to take away the guilt of your sins. That word for take away, when John uses it, it's iro in the Greek. When John uses it, the idea that he has is what we call expiation. You know that term? It is a big fancy word we use in theology, and the entire idea of it is taking away the guilt of your sin. So if you want a big fancy word for that, there it is, to expiate that is what Iro means here. It means it also in the first chapter of John's gospel. This is where it's famously said by John the Baptist when he first sees Jesus, the one he's pointing to, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who, Iros, takes away the sins of the world. Of course, it's clear that John the Baptist didn't mean Jesus was coming and he was going to remove all actual acting in sin that would ever happen in this world, life would be a lot easier. <laughs> but what is it Jesus meant? He's taking this lamb, takes away the guilt for all who trust in him. Now the fact that in John chapter 1, he's referred to as a lamb, that helps us understand this idea of Jesus taking away sins. Because if you were a Jewish person there hearing the ministry of John the Baptist there by the Jordan River and you heard him make that utterance about Jesus, there wouldn't be confusion as to what Jesus came to do because you would understand, ideally, Lamb of God taking away sin. Why would you understand that? Because every single year, for more than 1,000 years in the history of the Jewish people, leading up to the day John the Baptist said that, there was a Passover celebration with some gaps, but usually there was every year a Passover celebration, all the way from the sort of birth of the nation at the Exodus, that's when it was instituted, that there would be a yearly reminder via a Passover. And what was the reminder of for the Jewish people? that the Lamb of God takes away sins. Do you remember how the people were reminded of that in the Passover? First, they, you had a lamb, and the lamb was killed on the Passover, and the blood was taken, and it was by the blood of this innocent sheep who had no bones unbroken, a pure and undefiled sheep, by the blood of that sheep extracted from the sheep. It was that blood that, for the people of Israel, kept God's wrath from falling upon them. It expiated their sin. It took away the guilt of it so that God who dwelt in their midst, a holy God, would not destroy them. 
That was not of yesterday. That was over a thousand years the people had been reminded. But you may remember, just in case that wasn't clear enough for the Jewish people, that God had provided on every Passover another reminder of expiation, of the taking away of sins. Because not only would you take a lamb, kill it, and the blood would expiate your sin as a nation, but they would also take a goat. And the elders would come and lay their hands on the goat and confess the sins of the nation. And then they would take the goat and release it into the wilderness. I don't know how you get a better picture of your sins being literally taken away from you. You see how these two pictures of the Lamb of God's sacrifice and what we call the scapegoat, together they reminded the people of Israel year after year for more than a thousand years that it was by the blood of the Lamb provided by God and through the sins being put on a substitute and sent away that our sins can be removed, the guilt of them. And John says... The Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is what John, the apostle, is talking about in this letter right now. You know this, that Jesus appeared, why? To take away sins. The sins of anyone who trusts in him. Jesus fulfills that picture of the Lamb at the Passover and of the scapegoat at the Passover. He takes sin, he deals with it, and it is done. As far as the east is from the west, he carries our sins away from us. You who truly do believe in this Lamb of God, I'm not going to ask you if you believe he takes away the sin of the world, because that's actually the easier part of things. Here's the harder part. Do you believe he takes away the world of sin in you? <laughs> It is him removing the guilt of your sins. That's the harder piece to believe here. But listen, you know this. If you've trusted in Jesus, then take together all of the sins that you've committed in the past. For some of you, you stay up late at night remembering your former life. Perhaps sins you committed in the past, even as a Christian. And they haunt you. And you remember them. And you don't know what to do with the guilt that you feel over these things that you've already confessed. And they're in your past, but there they are night after night. For some of you, it is sin you are struggling with right now. And you are fighting it. But you don't always win in your fight against it. And you feel like a worthless Christian. You feel a great sense of guilt. You're overwhelmed by that. And for others, it's merely the sense that in the future, you will go on sinning. Maybe you have lost hope that you'll ever have success against sin. Or that God will ever accept you. Because even if he forgives you now, you just go on sinning. And struggling with sin. Do you believe that Jesus appeared... Not for healthy people who've already dealt with their sin, but for sick people like you who have sin that need dealt with. He appeared to take away not just sins out there of other people, but he appeared to take away your sins. To completely clear you of the guilt for any of your sins. Do you remember when you first came to Christ, perhaps, when you talked about the good news and you put the emphasis like this, good news. But for all of us, what can happen over time is the emphasis goes to good 
news. This is news that I need to know better. I need to know what expiation is. I got to figure out these theological terms. I got to be careful not to say anything wrong. And I got to share this gospel with everybody else. Now, those are all good, true things. But at some point, the good part of it just kind of fizzles out. <laughs> and you forget. That's why we're stirring you up. You forget the good is still there. And the good is for you. And the good is that the guilt of your sin is gone. It's not held against you. One mistake often made in the Christian life is when you have these feelings of guilt. Because those remain. And God uses some of those to stir you up to repent of sin, sure. But when you have these feelings of guilt as a Christian, it's easy to forget or to equate those with real guilt before God. If you feel guilty, then you are guilty before God. And He's quite disappointed with you. And He's looking down, pointing His finger, and mm, you're right on the verge. He might kick you out. No. Look, it doesn't matter how guilty you feel. It's irrelevant. If you're in Christ... There's no real guilt. There's none. It's gone. Or the gospel's not true. Did he or did he not take away your sins? Is the guilt for your sin still on you? Like you might feel it is? Or did he take it? Take it away to Calvary. Place it upon himself on the cross. And say it is finished and mean it. <laughs> Is it finished on him? Or do you still have to go in the penalty box and atone for your sins somewhat, okay? And he'll take most of it. This is the good of the good news, and it is the taking away of the guilt of your sin. It is expiation. It is that you are innocent in God's sight. That you are forgiven. This is why Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? We, we know the answer why God forsook Jesus on the cross. It's for you. So you don't have to be forsaken. So you don't have to live your life cut off from fellowship with God with the threat of judgment over your head. That's why Jesus is forsaken. God made him who knew no sin, like our text said. In him there's no sin. Verse 5. God took the one in whom there's no sin, and like an empty cup, free of sin, takes your sin, pours all of it in, deals with it on the cross. But now your cup's empty. Now you're innocent. And more than that, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to your account. You, when God looks at you, because of what Jesus did, not because of you, because of what Jesus did, he looks at you and he says, that, that is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. See that? That is my cherished daughter and I'm well pleased. And the daughter speaks up and says, but I'm so racked with sin and I'm struggling and you saw me last night and God doesn't hear it, don't care. It's already dealt with. The new stuff's dealt with. You don't believe this? Here's Hebrews. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you need another offering? No. Do you need to beat yourself like the monks used to do of old, carrying whips, beating yourself, wearing the camel hair, scratching your skin? Do you need to do something to atone for your sins? No. By a single offering, and it wasn't yours, God has perfected for all time, past, present, future, those who are being sanctified. And if you try to object, well, I'm not perfect yet, I've still got sin. He says those who are being sanctified. He's not talking about perfect Christians, he's talking about you. 
who are in process. You are in process when it comes to your practical righteousness, to living this thing out. But if you're really in Christ, there's no process when it comes to your actual real guilt. It's gone. Boom, gone. Jesus dealt with it on the cross. Like we sing, you're not guilty anymore. You're not filthy anymore. And God says to you, I love you. Mercy is yours. When we sing that song, do you hear it for yourself? You can hear it for others. It's sometimes hard to hear it for ourselves. So maybe you are here and you are crushed by a sense of guilt for the past, for the present, whatever it may be. And you might feel yourself just one massive disappointment to God. <laughs> and you hope there's some good Christians out there who can live up to his standards, but it's certainly not you. And your hope is that you'll just eke by as a Christian and slip unnoticed into the gates of heaven. <laughs> You're wrong. You're not a servant in the household. You understand? Jesus said, You're a friend. You're a child. You belong in this house if you're in Christ. You're embraced in this house. Your robes are white and pure. There's not a stain on them in God's sight. You are clean. You are innocent. And you will come up with many objections, too many for me to handle here, but you know them, the usual ones. Well, we can't say we're just totally forgiven because Christians will just live however they want to live. We're getting to that, okay? But if you're truly a believer, you won't. If you're truly in Christ, not perfect, but you're in Christ, there's no guilt. And you can live like there's no guilt. Jesus came to take away the guilt of your sin. That's the good part of the good news. <laughs> that brings us to the rest of our text. He said there in verse 5, you know this, so we stirred it up. You know that he appeared to take away sins. He appeared to take away the guilt of your sin. But now when you look at all the verses surrounding that, and even why does he say verse 5? It's because he's making a bigger point. You know he came to take away the guilt of your sin, but if he takes away the guilt of your sin, he does something that's also a part of the good of the good news. He also breaks the power of sin over your life. Let's see that here. He gives us actually two positive ways of saying that, two negative ways of saying that. But in all these verses besides verse 5, that's what he's saying built on verse 5, that the power of sin is broken in the life of a believer. Look at verse 4. We'll start with the negative ways he says this, and we'll move to the positive. Here's the first negative way he makes the statement in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In the original language there, there's actually a few more ands than we put in, and that's fine. But the ands in the original are to show you that verses 4 and 5 are strung together. They're not separate ideas. 4 leads into 5. 5 really serves as the basis of 4. 5, he's saying Jesus appeared to take away your sins. Jesus is a sinless substitute. He takes away your sins. Verse 4 is built on that. What John is saying is if Jesus came to take away the guilt of sin, does it not make sense that while he's at it, you might as well take away the sin itself. <laughs> if Jesus came as a holy God, so much against sin, his work on earth was to oppose sin. 
If he came to redeem people out of the sins they'd committed, out of the guilt of it, if he's a holy God, doesn't it make sense if his purpose in coming is to take sins away, that he wouldn't take away the guilt of it and then just plop, leave you right in the midst of your puddle of sinfulness and say, I don't care. Oh, he cares. And hence verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. The idea of lawlessness there, to make it very simple, is rebellion against God. The point that John is making is, you can't say you've trusted in Jesus and then go on living unchanged, fully engaged in a lifestyle of sin because when you trust in Jesus, he removes the guilt of your sin so that you can be reconciled to God. This is just logical. I hope this makes sense. The reason for removing the guilt of your sin is not so you feel great and God throws you off into outer space somewhere to live sinless by yourself forever. He removes the guilt of your sin because that's what's keeping you from your creator. So when the guilt's removed, you're reconciled. Hooray. And so John says, listen, doesn't it just make sense if he removes that to reconcile you to God, how are you going to then live a life that's in full rebellion against God. That's down here. That's not here. If you've been reconciled to God, your life will demonstrate that. Not perfectly. We still sin. Lawless is like, I don't know, the old American West when we talk about an outlaw. When we say an outlaw, it's someone outside the law, but it's specifically, it's not just someone who pilfered a candy bar in a store. An outlaw on those most wanted signs whether those were real or not. I don't know if that's just a movie thing. But if you see that, the outlaw was a person who was the antagonist against the sheriff and the deputy. They were on the side of the law, and the outlaw lived a life, not just once or twice, right? But he lived a life totally contrary to the sheriff and deputy and the law that they stood for. John is saying, listen, sin is, it's not a light thing. Sin is lawlessness. If you live a lifestyle of continued, unfought, unrepented of sin, no change in your life, you are an outlaw. We can't think you've been reconciled to God. The guilt's gone, you're reconciled. No, because you're still over here fighting God, guns blazing. John is just trying to help you see it makes sense that Jesus came to the earth not just to deal with the guilt of your sin, but he did that so he could also deal with the power of your sin the presence of your sin, so you could actually be sinning less, so you wouldn't live a life as an outlaw against God in full rebellion against Him. Now, it's possible and probably likely that the false teachers we've been seeing as we go through First John, that they were teaching that it was possible for them to sin, say sexual immorality or something, that's usually what cults do, or something like that. They could sin, but for whatever their reasons, God's fine with it. You know, God forgives. It's his job. And we have this a little bit today when you have people who are nominally Christian. Yeah, believe in Jesus. Don't do much about it. Still sin quite a bit, but, you know, pray, God forgive me, and that's that. God forgives me. We're treating sin as if it wasn't rebellion. You know, sin is just a life of sin. It's fine. That's why in verse 7, John says, little children, don't let anyone deceive you. I don't care what's popular in the culture. I don't care if this is what all your neighbors think. John is saying, 
If you live your life unchanged when you trust in Jesus, you didn't trust in Jesus. The experience that you had, the prayer that you prayed, going up to the altar, those may have moved you significantly in an emotional way, and that's wonderful. But if you're not changed, you're not changed. John is saying, it's not that you have to stop sinning to be God's people. Try to stop sinning. It's that God is so powerful that if you are his people, you will stop sinning. Not perfectly, but over time, there will be a change. The last half of verse 6 puts it even more clearly. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And I do want to make the comment that you might be hearing this message and think, this is legalistic. But you just tell me, how else would you take the last half of verse 6? Because you understood, I'm preaching this message, but I didn't write that. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now let me clarify to you, he says keeps on sinning, and your translation may vary there. Very clearly, what he's not saying is no one who ever sins, again, no one has seen him or known him if you sin. That's not true. And we know that from John himself. You remember the start of chapter 2. If anyone does sin, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. If you're a believer, you still sin. He knows that. Chapter 1 said, if we say we have no sin, we trick ourselves and the truth is in us, if we confess our sins, he forgives us and cleanses us. So don't misunderstand John. It's the same John writing both of those. He's very aware that Christians will continue to struggle with sin and to commit sins. But it's those who keep on, no one who keeps on sinning as a lifestyle. Meaning, if you say, Jesus took away my sins, but none or almost none of your actual sins that you commit have changed at all from before he did that to after he did that, then he didn't do that. There is a change in life that takes place. John's not saying that Jesus can only forgive so many of your sins or anything like that. He's just saying when Jesus forgives the guilt of your sin, he also at the same time breaks the chain by which sin holds you, so that you're free. And you'll see that in your life, because over time, sometimes slowly, but over time, we put off the actual practice of sin in our life. If I can be permitted one more example, somewhat like last week, and it just seemed to fit here. This is very relevant to our times, because you are aware that one of the common things happening today is someone who is a biological male will then say that they are female, but biologically are still male, but will say that they are female. And it's easy for many of us to look at that and say, well, you're just pretending. And that is true. It is just, a, it is just an act of pretending. This is true. But while we continue to point that out, as we should, that that is pretending and that's not real, that's not reality, we have to be fair as well. And we have to point back at ourselves. We who are in more conservative circles, we need to be aware that we can be guilty of practicing almost exactly the same kind of sin, even if it looks differently. And what I mean is that we in our circles are less likely to say, I'm biologically male or female, but I'm going to be something else. I say that I am something else. But instead we say, well, 
I am an unbeliever by every evidence if you look at me, but I'm really a Christian. Just as much in a land of fantasy. Just as much pretend. So let's not trick ourselves. We ought to search ourselves in this matter. Is there any real evidence that could be used against you in a court of law that you really have experienced a change by a righteous, holy God and therefore you, as our text will say, are becoming more righteous as He is righteous? Or are you, by every evidence, anyone who knows you closely, anyone whom you've not tricked, anyone who can look at your life for any period of time, the people you live with especially, they look at your life and they don't see evidence that you're much different than every unbeliever they know. But you say, no, I'm a believer. How do you know? I trusted in Jesus. I had an experience. I prayed this prayer, this, that, or that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. We must be equally bold in addressing this confusion in ourselves as in anyone else. There is an actual reality. And there is an actual reality not just in matters of gender. There is an actual reality in spiritual matters when it comes to are you in Christ. That's not fuzzy. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And John is saying if you're in Christ then you will see the power of sin broken in your life. Now, those are the two negative ways he puts this, but he also puts this in two positive ways as well. If you look at this, start of verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Never forget that this is also a part of the good news. It's not just good news that the guilt of your sin is gone. It is good news that the power of your sin is gone. It's very good news. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. Aren't you longing for the day when you stop sinning? I remember when we had Jody, our missionary from India, when he was visiting with us years ago, and he was talking because in his city, persecution was increasing. There was suffering happening among believers, and someone asked him, I remember it vividly, they asked him, Jody, when you face suffering and persecution, don't you long for heaven? And Jody's response, which I will never forget, was he said, actually, it's not the persecution that makes us long for heaven. It's my own sin. I want to be done with my own sin. This is a part of the good news that if you know Christ, you are righteous also in your practice. Whoever practices righteousness, verse 7 says, is righteous as God is righteous. When you kill the dragon of the guilt of your sin, that just frees you to reach the maiden of holiness. Now you can live a holy life. Family of God, your Savior is sinless. In Him there's no sin. He's righteous. He is righteous. And He became a man like us so that we, although we are men and women, can become like Him in this particular. We can be righteous, not just imputed, but in our actual practice, we can grow. 
What I'm urging upon you on the basis of this text is not for you to go home and grab your big mallet for a game of whack-a-mole and just start whacking away at the sins that you have. It's rather exhausting. I'm appealing to you to have an entirely different way of looking at your fight against sin, to see it as a part of a bigger purpose of God, that He came, Jesus appeared, to take away sins, to redeem for Himself a people for His own possession who are purified from sin. He's working with you to accomplish this, and it's good news that it includes your lifestyle. If you have any sense that what the world promotes, which is sin and counter to God, is more beautiful in an aesthetic sense or in any sense, you have to recognize you're seeing it wrong. Let me stir this up with the gospel. See it differently. What God has come to accomplish in you, that you yourself cleared of your guilt, will actually be righteous, that is beautiful. It is the most beautiful of all things happening on this earth. You, but without your sin. So no more of this fatalism that we sometimes fall into. I'm worthless, I'm just guilty, and I sin, and I struggle, and it will never change. Hogwash. It can change, or the gospel's not true, because he who clears the guilt of your sin with that same grace and power, is at work to break the power of sin in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we do believe that you have appeared, and we believe you appeared specifically to take away sins. So I want to plead on behalf of us as a local gathering, we don't have high ambitions. We, um, we don't, we're not like Solomon in his prayer. We're not asking for money. We're not asking for the life of our enemies. We're not asking for fame. What we're requesting is that you would continue your work of purging us. We're not looking out and saying change them, but right now our main prayer is change us. Change us because of our sin. Purify us, change our perspective, help us to see as beautiful what you see as beautiful, to love what you love in us, and to hate what you hate in us. And when that becomes a burden too great to bear, help us to remember that the guilt of it all is cleared, and we are completely free in the gospel of all our guilt and entirely accepted in the beloved. And I pray that in that power, we would go forth conquering and to conquer over all the sin that is left within us for the sake of your great name.